Iran has a plan. Come February, it'll be 40 years since Ayatollah Khomeini returned from exile to Tehran to lead what he called an Islamic revolution and begin forming a government committed to jihad. By the end of 1979, he was supreme leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran. What he and his acolytes intend has been stated clearly and with consistency by Iran's ruling Ayatollahs. They intend to establish a great new empire. They intend to destroy their enemies and dominate the Middle East. They intend death to America. That may take longer, but they're not impatient. And they have friends and family to help them. In particular, they have Hezbollah, an Arab Shia terrorist army based in Lebanon, but willing and able to fight beyond Lebanon's borders, for example, in Syria, and if they can, on Israeli soil, by digging under Israeli soil. President Trump's decision to withdraw from Syria can only be seen as a victory for the Islamic Republic, as well as for the Islamic State, which now has the opportunity to revive and rebuild. FDU Research Fellow Tony Badran has been studying Hezbollah for years. He's here, along with Jonathan Shanzer, FDD's Senior Vice President for Research, to discuss what we might call the tunnel vision that prevents so many in America and Europe from seeing what's really happening in the Middle East. I'm Cliff May, and this is Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Tony, uh, listeners to this podcast know what Hezbollah is, but let's take a moment to make sure we're on the same page. Just talk a little bit about how it began, how it emerged, where it comes from. Well, yes, it's actually quite topical that the uh, 40th anniversary is uh, upon us because Hezbollah really dates back uh, to to that to that uh, birthday of the Islamic Republic. In fact, even a little bit before that, when a lot of the would-be senior IRGC commanders were operating in Lebanon in the 70s at the time, well before the Israeli invasion of 1982. And they were already the IRGC. Let's just remember that's the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the guard of the, uh, of the of the regime. That's right. And and they were operating in Lebanon with the Palestinians at the time that were the the primary force in Lebanon, and they started seeding um, this local uh, Shia uh, recruits of uh, and, and a unit that basically is a unit of the IRGC itself, commanded by the IRGC, with a full and absolute loyalty to then uh, Ayatollah Khomeini and today Ayatollah Khamenei. They have absolute loyalty to the supreme leader of Iran. And uh, they, you talked about their patience, and they've been working on it literally for 40 years and building it up from a small um, militia to what is now basically the primary political and military and even economic force in Lebanon. And, and John, let, talk a little bit about what's happened most recently, which is President Trump's decision to, to say that the small but highly effective 
uh, contingent of American special forces in eastern Syria needn't be there any longer, that they've accomplished their uh, mission. Um, the Islamic State uh, has been decimated, if not destroyed. And Iran, and I don't know if he meant to say it this way, but he, he did, can do what they want in, 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 in Syria, which means Hezbollah can do what it wants as well. Sure. Well, part of what's happening here is that Hezbollah is just a piece of uh, of the puzzle uh, for the Iranians. They have now other actors uh, operating across the Middle East. Uh, they have Shiite militias that are operating in Iraq as well as Syria. Uh, and they've taken advantage of the chaos, the chaos from the Iraq war. Uh, they've taken uh, advantage of the chaos of the so-called Arab Spring and the uh, and the civil war that's been uh, raging in Syria. And they've used these Shiite militias as well as their own presence through the IRGC as well as uh, other uh, Iranian officials to establish a beachhead um, and to establish what they call a land bridge uh, or the Shiite crescent stretching from western Iran all the way to the Mediterranean. And the goal is to basically connect Iran to Hezbollah, to be able to ship whatever they wish, to be able to bring whatever kind of weaponry they would like to bring uh, into the hands of Hezbollah to have them better prepared for a war. Now, key to all of that has been uh, utilizing Syria, which has been a contested space. You've got obviously a civil war that's been raging there with uh, Nusra Front and ISIS. And the U.S. has actually, through a very small presence, through about 2,200 troops, has really been a deterrent to Iran in completing that land bridge. With, uh, with President Trump's announcement to leave Syria, he's basically signaled to the Iranians that they will be able to complete that land bridge project and effectively be able to bring whatever they'd like into the hands of Hezbollah. And I think that the term land bridge is fine and Shia Crescent makes some sense. Jordan's king obviously used that phrase some time ago. If people can envision a map, it's also, the, I, I think, and you tell me if I'm wrong, Tony, the, the shape of a, a forthcoming uh, Iranian Shia empire that's meant to be ir, ir, obviously Iran, possibly pushing eastward into Afghanistan. They intend to be the major power in Iraq. They, they still have to compete with the U.S. to some extent since American troops came back following the 2011 withdrawal by President Obama. Syria will be theirs. Bashar Assad is their satrap, to use a word from the Persian Empire, viceroy, regent, vassal king, call what you will. Lebanon, and we need to talk about this more, fully under Hezbollah or close to fully under Hezbollah control. There's, there are arguments about that. I want to hear yours. I know what yours are. Um, and then, of course, they also have uh, influence certainly in Gaza with Hamas, even though Hamas is, is Sunni. So, and then they threaten uh, various other nations of the Middle East, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia particularly. John and I were recently there. We, we, it's very. It, it should be simple to see what they are planning and, and also why if they achieve their goals, it would be deleterious not just to the Middle East, but, but to the American interests. Since the uh, American war in Iraq, um, uh, basically whether we can debate its merits, but it did open up space for them in, in Iraq that they did not uh, have before. So uh, militias that we're talking about now, these Shiite militias, a huge bulk of them come from Iraq, right? So as we're talking about the land bridge, it's important to keep that in mind, that the bridge in Syria connects two other points. It connects Iraq to the east of Syria and Lebanon 
the west of Syria. In both places, Iran has uh, pretty much power on the ground in the central government. And that is, that is a, that gives them a tremendous advantage by land, but also, for instance, using uh, Iraqi airspace to fly directly. One of the things that we've been seeing in, in recent uh, months uh, are reports from Western and U.S. intelligence about Iranian civilian aircraft landing weapons shipments and missile components directly in Beirut airport, which is supported by, uh, which is uh, manned by the Lebanese armed forces and a host of other security agencies, all of which funded by the United States. And so we have to reckon with the, the problem of U.S. policy, not just in Syria, but outside Syria too, where we've had, where our policies, both in Iraq and in Lebanon, in supporting central governments there, that uh, you mentioned the word satrap for, for Bashar al-Assad. I mean, we can use similar terminology. Uh, I mean, in Beirut, it doesn't even apply because they run it directly. And in Iraq, perhaps less uh, severe than that. But we have to reckon with the, the results of our policies there that have also enabled Iran to make that connection on both sides uh, of the Syria node of that bridge. The Europeans, as far as I can tell, are either either see none of this or see it and 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 it do- doesn't bother them. Is that is that correct? I'm not sure if it doesn't bother them, but I think they feel paralyzed. Uh, I think they don't really have uh, a an answer. Uh, uh, part of this is wanting to try to maintain the fiction of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal of 2015, and not wanting uh, to perhaps antagonize the Iranians. And of course, the Iranians see Hezbollah as their prize proxy. Uh, part of it is the sort of French and uh, British legacy uh, in the Levant, uh, the fiction that they still have some kind of uh, control um, uh, over these territories or some kind of influence. Uh, but by and large, I think the Israelis see themselves as uh, alone in the wilderness, uh, especially so now that Donald Trump has signaled that he would like to vacate Syria as well. Just to be clear on this, so the, the you're suggesting that the Europeans – their main goal here is to maintain certain convenient fictions about the way the world works and the way the Middle East works and about what Lebanon is. That, that's what they're doing at this point? Well, one of the things in Lebanon in particular, so the French have a history, as you know, with, with Lebanon, but beyond the sentimentality of it, uh, the French also have direct uh, interests in, in Lebanon. For instance, their uh, oil uh, company, the Total Company, for instance, is one of uh, three, uh, in a consortium of three other companies, an Italian and a Russian, that are uh, that have signed a contract to explore offshore uh, energy resources uh, uh, offshore of, of Lebanon and Lebanese uh, in the Mediterranean coast. Um, they have personnel on the ground in UNIFIL, which I, I suspect we'll be talking about as well, the United Nations force in Lebanon that is supposed to maintain the peace between Israel and Lebanon after the 2006 war especially. Um, they This force has been attacked a number of times. So a number of European uh, nations have forces in there. Hezbollah has attacked them. And so they understand that their forces are effectively hostages to, to Hezbollah. And, and they, as a result, have uh, basically determined that it's best not to rock the boat uh, in southern Lebanon for these variety of, of, of interests that they have. And, and let's get to the U.S. On, on this because one thing that was surprising about what President Trump did is you had National Security Advisor John Bolton not that long ago 
saying very specifically that, yes, we have our special forces and some air power, also special forces, in Syria in order to continue to pound the Islamic State. But we are, we're also there to frustrate uh, the, the ambitions of Iran's rulers. He was pretty specific on that. And Mike Pompeo clearly knows that as well. And Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, has been very tough uh, that he wants to at least contain Iran. That's why we have sanctions reimposed and economic pressure. The f- fact that you have American troops that effective, that near the Iranian border, sent a very specific signal to the Iranians that they had a better better watch out. Um, this seems to me to to send a message to, to, to Iran's rulers, to the Islamic State, to jihadis anywhere, that if you just wait a little while, just as Osama bin Laden predicted, Americans will eventually get tired and they will retreat from the battlefield. You'll see the infidels flee one way or another. They may declare victory, but everyone knows there's no victory. There are 30,000 members of ISIS still around and the Iranians will they, – they must be pom- popping the pomegranate champagne uh, right now in Tehran over this, no? I think that's right and I think that it, it's not just that uh, someone like John Bolton or Mike Pompeo were surprised. I think Jim Jeffrey was surprised. I think uh, – Tell who Jim Jeffrey uh, is. Jim Jeffrey is the envoy to Syria for the United States. And Brett uh, McGurk, of course, Brett who McGurk, resigned. The, who was the, the former envoy to ISIS. Uh, obviously, uh, Secret- uh, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis who resigned in protest over this. There were a number of people who were very surprised over this. Look, Part of this was that uh, the decision to shift uh, some of the focus in Syria away from ISIS to Iran uh, was seen by some as mission creep. Uh, but at the end of the day, you don't get to choose who your enemies are in the Middle East. They choose you. And I think that uh, the adults in the room, so to speak, were very aware of this um, and saw the need to continue. I think that the decision now to leave has certainly uh, emboldened the Iranians. But I would actually add this, that uh, it is also being celebrated by other bad actors around the region as well. Uh, Vladimir Putin is now seeing his airspace totally uncontested in Syria and is uh, thinking that uh, uh, basically Donald Trump completed the job that Obama had started when he indicated that he had no interest in in being in Syria in the first place. This is really what invited Putin to come into Syria and to establish his military presence. Uh, I would even argue that countries like North Korea are applauding this because they're looking around and now perhaps thinking that the United States doesn't have the stomach to stick it out in places where uh, they need to spend money uh, and potentially put American lives at risk uh, in order to maintain the U.S.-led world order. So I think that uh, – and, and those who would be opposed to NATO, um, I, I really – I can't think of one bad actor out there who isn't cheering this most recent decision. Yeah, I just uh, – it's, it's an interesting point. If you're Kim Jong-un, the dynastic dictator of North Korea – and you see that 2,200 troops can't be sustained in eastern Syria where they are doing really well but in terms of two principal American enemies. They're American enemies because they have declared themselves so, the Islamic State and Iran. Very little chance that American military force is going to be used against him. So it's just the sanctions pressure he needs to resist for a while longer. Eventually, the Americans, they tire quickly after all. That's right. Well, or perhaps maybe another way is that, look, there is a new isolationist trend mm. uh, in the United States and that maybe it's time for him to capitalize on it as well. And the isolationist trend, there, are, if you want to call it that, exists on both the right and the left of the political spectrum, I think is fair to say. 
and I think it's also probably fair to say, I'm not the first one to say it or the only one to say it, is at this moment, President Trump's policies are looking a lot more like President Obama's policies. If you if, if that is the case, then you can kind of see the way the trend line is, is, is tending and you can kind of know that if you if if you have the stomach to stick it out, if you're willing to apply force, if you're willing to do what Vladimir Putin has done, he doesn't have a military anything like ours, but he's used it effectively. He now has naval and air bases in Syria on the Mediterranean for the first time since the end of the Soviet uh, the end of Soviet power. There's a lot you can accomplish, and the Americans won't really stand in your way if you just persist. I think that's right. Um, but I, I, I would maybe also add this, that as much as uh, Trump policy right now looks like Obama 2.0, uh, it's motivated by very different things. Right? Uh, the Obama doctrine was motivated by this uh, assumption that, that perhaps America really wasn't that exceptional and that perhaps we shouldn't be viewing ourselves uh, as the policemen of the world, that we have no right to uh, assert our will uh, in other parts of the world. The Trump doctrine, uh, I think, is very different in the sense that this is a president who I think sees America as, as exceptional, but is just not willing to make the investment. Um, and, and I don't really know how that is going to be viewed by uh, America's adversaries or enemies as anything other than just simple weakness, right? The Obama doctrine said we're strong, but we don't want to be there. This is we don't have the will and we're leaving. And I think there's a big difference. I guess it's time to bring the other important player into the equation, and that's the Israelis. They're in the region. They are directly threatened um, by the Islamic Republic. The, the Islamic Republic's rulers for years have said, Israel is a cancer. We are going to remove it from the Middle East. And they're working on a strategy to do that, um, not just with the development of nuclear weapons, though that certainly would help, but by uh, but but through Hezbollah and through uh, it, the, the attempt to establish bases in Syria, and most recently, and let's talk about this. Uh, for years, we've known that Hamas has been digging tunnels under Israeli soil with the the expect and, and to some extent, to some with some success, not complete, but with the idea that you send terrorists through those tunnels, they'd pop up in villages and kibbutzim, they would kill people, they would drag children into the tunnels as hostages. That was the idea. What has been somewhat of a surprise, because the the geography is so different, not not sandy but rocky, is that up in the north, Hezbollah also has been building tunnels as a way to invade Israel, uh, in in if, in the to utilize in the in I guess the next war that Hezbollah is planning against Israel. Yes, that's right. So this has the plan that uh, to dig uh, uh, tunnels in the north uh, for Hezbollah has been going on for for a number of years. I mean, it came to light now because of the Israeli decision. How long have the Israelis known about it? Any idea? I think it's a good for. I mean, they've known about it theoretically since Hezbollah announced it in a, in about two thousand ten, two thousand eleven that that they have a plan to invade the Galilee. Now the question is how much of that was bluster and propaganda, and how much that was was real. So they started looking into it, and about I would say maybe a good four years ago, the Israelis had already reports from civilians in the north that they were hearing 
digging, underground noises and stuff like that. So they've been monitoring it for the longest time. And then they planned it. So uh, roughly about a two-year planning operation with all the technology that's required and the mapping and so on. And now they've decided to take action uh, at this point because, as you saw, the, the tunnels were actually complete. They were actually popping up on the Israeli side. They've discovered five of them so far that they've uh, that they've neutralized uh, from the Israeli side without going into the Lebanese side. Uh, so th- that aspect of it is what uh, frightens the Israelis in about Iranian entrenchment because once you have an Iranian asset on your border, like you have them in Gaza and in Lebanon. Now, if you set up another one in, in uh, Syria, then you have uh, a different set of, of challenges because the tunnels, uh, I mean, the Israelis will readily admit this, is not really the principal aspect of the threat. The, the principal aspect of the threat is missile power uh, or rockets that are capable of hitting Israeli civilian centers, strategic infrastructure, and so on and so forth. And what the Iranians have been doing is to try to increase the precision of these uh, missiles and rockets that Hezbollah has. Uh, And this is, again, to go back to my point, we need to widen the aperture a little bit beyond Syria to include Lebanon and Iraq, right? And so we have been, we've had this tunnel vision, uh, no pun intended, on Syria, which is all, you know, it's warranted and everything. But as we were doing that, Stuff was happening in Lebanon where the United States policy has been complicit. Same thing in Iraq where we have troops. For stuff to pass through Syria, it has to first pass through Iraq. So, and the United States military hasn't left Iraq. So there is a problem with the policy when, when they, when, when the Iranians can use Iraqi airspace and Lebanese airports where in both places we spend money and give support and we even have troops in certain in, in Iraq and uh, and their territories to do this without without actually taking action beyond beyond Syria. I just want you to make clear one thing and I'll come to you, John. And that is the, the U.S. and perhaps even more the European view of Lebanon is that However bad Hezbollah may be, we still need to shore up the Lebanese government and the Lebanese armed forces because that's the only thing that reigns in Hezbollah. And your view is that's just utter nonsense at this point. Right. I mean, it's it's not just the European. It's an American yeah. doctrine right now. Yeah, we're supporting uh, the Lebanese we, armed forces. We're we, supporting the Lebanese correct. government. Correct. We can debate its origins. You know, you can trace it to either um, sort of uh, nation-building ideas or even things that come out of counterterrorism ideas as to what's the best way to combat terrorist groups and so on. And and the idea is that Lebanon becomes, the, for instance, the State Department um, classifies Lebanon as a, a, a terrorist safe haven. But the problem is that the, the definition itself assumes that um, that there is lack of capacity. So there's a bad governance or... Or, or, or under government that leads to a terrorist group, which is a separate entity from the government, to do what it needs to, to do to grow. But that's not the case in Lebanon. The terrorist group in question is the government. And the government is very much present in all the areas where this terrorist group is doing its activities. In fact, it's complicit in assisting it in doing its activities. And, and, and people may find this puzzling. If you go to Beirut, 
every woman is not forced to wear a chador. There is you can drink alcohol. Hezbollah is not putting the kind of is not imposing Sharia law in Lebanon the way say. Um, the, Islam, the, the Islamic rulers of Iran have done over the past 40 years. They, it's, it's an interesting because they do impose uh, through through a uh, uh, form of unspoken intimidation sometimes even. They don't need, really need to enforce it on their own areas, on mm. Hezbollah's areas. So, uh, but not completely. So there is still a measure of, you know, for people if they don't want to do it, but there's still social pressure and, and other types of pressure that's put on them. Outside their area, yeah, they have not imposed that on, on non-Shiite. On Muslims. the Christians, yes. on the Sunnis, yes. on the Jews, because there are these other populations Correct. there that are increasingly with or decreasingly in control control of their own lives, but maybe given a measure of some Correct. latitude. On, on, on the social level, on the social but level. not on anything else, on the foreign no. policy, on security, on internal security, uh, on even some aspects of the economy. Uh, th- they dictate the pace and everyone knows it. Now, the Israelis can and probably made sense for them to let the tunnels mature, let, the, uh, let Hezbollah and the Iranians spend all the money they want, watch it, and only when they've done with all their work and all their spending then destroy the tunnels, make them absolutely useless. Makes sense to let that threat mature and not to deal with it prematurely. Missiles are another question. How we have, we're talking about what, John? 150,000 missiles, and as Tony says, increasingly you're seeing pre- precision missiles, and perhaps we're going to see, and probably should address this, factories to make them so you don't have to deliver them. Um, how long can the Israelis allow this threat to mature before they've waited too long? Uh, all good questions. I mean, first, on the question of the tunnels, I think it's important to note that they they did track this for about four years. They developed new technology to be able to identify where the tunnels were, uh, as well as developing intelligence networks uh, in Lebanon. Uh, to be able to identify where the tunnels were, how they originated, where they were designed to end, uh, all, all of those things. They waited uh, to not only let the tunnels mature uh, and to be built as, as far along as they could and to let Hezbollah basically spin its wheels, um, but also uh, with the idea that they needed to um, amass enough uh, cement to be able to uh, fill in some of them, to be able to procure the kinds of explosives that they needed in order to either booby trap or destroy them. In other words, this was a long time coming. It took basically two years to prepare for this operation that is still ongoing right now in Israel. It's incredibly complicated. It's requiring you know the uh, Army Corps of Engineers over there to work through this. Uh, and so it's been fascinating to watch the Israelis work. It's also been fascinating to watch the messaging. They let the West, specifically the United United States as well as the Europeans know that they were about to do this before they did and they signaled to the international community that you better rein in Hezbollah. We are going to do the work on our side of the border, they said, uh, and we're not going to go into Lebanon. But if we are uh, attacked, we will respond in full force. So they needed to have a lot lined up in order to conduct these operations the way that they are as they are neutralizing these tunnels. And I would probably also say that there are probably going to be some more tunnels that they find, whether they come from Lebanon or whether they come from Syria. We're going to see, I think, more of them in the weeks and months ahead. As for the missiles, the the estimates range from 100,000 to 180,000, I think, hundred and 50,000 is probably a safe bet uh, when we talk about the numbers. Uh, Tony is right that they are looking at the more precise uh, rockets now that that are really the concern. Uh, they're called PGMs, precision guided missiles, and there are more and more of them that are coming into the Lebanese theater. Uh, the Israelis have a map. 
uh, of where a lot of these are. Uh, unfortunately for the Israelis, uh, many of them are now able to be launched by remote control. Many of them are placed next to high population uh, centers like apartments and, and hospitals and schools and things like that. So the Israelis know that when they do attack, uh, they're going to incur um, a huge PR problem because there will be collateral damage. There's no way around that. But I think from the Israeli perspective, what they're even more concerned about is how to knock as many of these rockets down out of the sky. Uh, you think about what happened in the 2014 war where there were 4,000 rockets fired into Israel and it paralyzed Israeli airspace and shut down Ben-Gurion Airport. What happens when Hezbollah fires 140,000 of these rockets on a, you know, on a, a barrage on a daily basis? So what the Israelis are now thinking about is how to uh, prepare enough of these Iron Dome interceptors all of which are very expensive, somewhere between twenty to $50,000 a piece, and they've got to manufacture enough of these to knock down potentially 150,000 rockets out of the sky. So there's a lot that they're thinking about. But the big issue, and this is something that Tony and I wrote about in our report uh, uh, over the course of last year, is uh, for every day that Israel allows the threat to grow, uh, it, it's, a, it's a liability. So there is an imperative for the Israelis to think about an, uh, a preemptive strike. But then again, do they want to do that? Do they want to vacate, they evacuate their, the northern quarter of the country? Do they want to bring upon Israel a war that no one really wants? Uh, or, you know, or, or do they wait and let the threat gather? One thing I think we shouldn't let pass, um, President Trump just signed a law on against the use of human shields. And FDD has done a lot of research and a lot of work on this particular issue, both in terms of domestic law and in terms of international law. Ambassador Nikki Haley was working on this, and hopefully uh, Heather Nauert, if she becomes the ambassador, as we think, will work on this as well to get a UN Security Council resolution. Because when you talk about the collateral damage, what you're really talking about is the fact that Hezbollah purposefully puts its missiles close to population centers. The intending that these people, Shia, like them, will be killed and will be, as they say, I guess, martyred for the cause and that they will not take the PR hit. It will be the Israelis that do so, even though they are purposefully putting their own people in what they know is the line of fire. Just a question. Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the UN, they must be just livid about this, aren't they? Yeah, I, I, it's 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 um, it's interesting how how the international institutions, specifically United Nations, right, and UNIFIL in particular. Well, we need to, and I, this was my segue to UNIFIL because the UN has as a mission has had since the 2006 war between Israel and Hezbollah, I won't say between Israel and Lebanon, even though the next war will be with not just Hezbollah but Lebanon, has had as its mission to prevent these missiles from being emplaced in southern Lebanon, south of the Litani River. And of course, they haven't done their job at all. Right. So, I mean, the, the mandate of the resolution 1701, uh, which ended the war in 2006, uh, doesn't allow UNIFIL to, it gives it some freedom, but basically it needs to cooperate with the Lebanese government and the Lebanese armed forces, uh, in order to do its job, to maintain a weapons free zone in, in the area south of the Litani, between the Litani River and the Blue Line. Um, of course, the fact that they have to do that on the one hand already compromises the mission. Uh, but then also there's their own self-censorship, as it were, in that 
Once they got hit a couple of times by Hezbollah, which happened really immediately. By 2007, they were already getting car bombs and, and attacks and so on. Uh, Unifil was yes, itself. Yes, yes. Uh, I think you should make this clear, and you've written about this. Unifil troops, who are foreign troops under UN auspices, have been attacked by Hezbollah. Their weapons seized, they're, they've been threatened, and they've been intimidated. That's right. And, and uh, last year there was, uh, or the year before, uh, there was a report in, in a French newspaper that talked about, uh, th- that interviewed former UNIFIL personnel who really laid out a very, very sad picture of not just like that they hire, that how UNIFIL hire locals, for instance, who work for Hezbollah, they, they spy on them, uh, how they have stopped doing certain patrols. Uh, they don't go into places because they just rather not have the headache. And that's why for all this time, they just deny that anything was going on. No, everything's fine. Everything's stable. We don't want to rock the boat. Just renew the mandate year after year and just let's keep the status quo. Uh, like I said, you know, at, there, there was there was a temptation when the war started in Syria to substitute the theater in Lebanon with with Syria and say, look, we have now free reign to hit in Syria as much as we like. We don't have to worry about the potential cost of a war in Lebanon, and they'll be stuck in Syria for God knows how long. And so it's good. This is mm. this is this is going to work out fine. And then all of a sudden. You have the Russian inter- intervention. You have President Obama's sort of pro-Iran tilt in general that back- shied away from any challenge. In fact, buttressed their position uh, on Israel's borders. And now all of a sudden, you know, oh, no, what do we do now? I mean, there's there's a sense that, oh, look at these tunnels that have been going on. Now the Iranian planes are landing in Beirut. Uh, 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 the Americans are going, uh, are leaving Syria so there's a sense of urgency that's 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 uh, uh, that's emerging now, and I think um, uh, bottom line, I think that if the idea that that the, that a body like uni- if you're counting on something like Unifil to maintain the peace uh, and and do its job, don't. And I I, I suspect that the, the Israelis know this full well. Let's talk about. The- <laughs> Uh, the next war between Israel and Hezbollah or Israel and Hezbollah and Lebanon, since Hezbollah and Lebanon are, are no longer quite distinguishable, um, it, it's a matter of when, not if, you would say. Is there a way to prevent this long term or not really? Um, yeah, look, the way that we're, I think, now describing the coming war is um, it's going to be the northern war. It's not going to necessarily just be limited to Lebanon. There are sort of rules of engagement now and the Israelis, I think, are now rightfully looking at that Iranian um, plan for establishing uh, military assets, not just in Lebanon itself, but extending through Syria as well as Iraq, as we discussed. Shiite militias may have a role to play in the coming war. Uh, rockets out of Syria may have a role to play in the coming war. Um, and so the Israelis, I think, are rightfully looking not only at the tunnel threat, not only looking at the rocket threat in, in Lebanon, but they're looking at Hezbollah's fighters in uh, Syria itself, where there's 10,000 or more that have been based there. Um, they, they're battle-hardened. They've gotten experience fighting against the Islamic State and other jihadi groups. Uh, there are um, uh, rocket um, installations that the Israelis have destroyed. They have attacked Iranian uh, military leaders and Hezbollah military leaders that have been based in Syria. So in other words, there's a war that's happening. Uh, 
Uh, there's kind of a cat and mouse game that's been taking place in Syria. There's now the operation that's taking place on Israel's northern border with the tunnels. So this is happening in slow motion. The question is whether it's going to speed up or whether it's going to be this cat and mouse game that continues now for months or perhaps years moving into the future. Again, I think from the Israeli perspective, the question is, how long do you let these threats gather? And that is what they're thinking about right now in the Kiria and the sort of Israeli Pentagon in, in Tel Aviv. They're thinking about their calculus about how much longer they let these storms gather. There's one other clock ticking, it seems to me. And disappointed as the Israelis may be that Trump doesn't seem to be, be seeing Either Iran or the Islamic State as a common enemy that they should be that that, that they want to fight together. Um, nonetheless, while Trump is in office, two years could be longer, but we don't know that. They need to think in the terms of two years. He is likely to give the Israelis a lot more reign, a lot more free reign to do what they think they need to do than somebody who then a democratic president who's more in the obama mode obama always reigned in the israelis in terms of its enemies they may think i oh, would got to, if we're going to do something ourselves and we wish we didn't have to but at least at least we'll get we'll, we'll get resupplied at least we'll have they'll have our the, the americans will have our back under trump if we're going to do this i don't know that we want to wait till the next president is in office and see how that works out yeah, I mean, look, I would I would note a couple of things. Number one, I think the Israelis always want to do this themselves. That's part of the Israeli doctrine. Um, they certainly don't mind having allies, and they certainly don't mind having support from the United States, diplomatic or perhaps providing additional um, ammunition or hardware. Uh, but they want to do this themselves, and that's why some in Israel right now, even as Trump made this disappointing announcement that he's leaving Syria, they're saying, look. We have a job to do. We know what that job is and we're going to take care of the Iranians ourselves anyway. So maybe it doesn't really matter. In fact, maybe what this does is it gives us even more of a green light to attack the Iranians. I'm not sure if that resonates entirely with everyone who watches the region, but certainly there are some in Israel who've been uh, framing it that way. Uh, but this is, I think, what the Israelis are thinking about now, as you say, is that are they going to get what they need from a future uh, Elizabeth Warren or Oprah Winfrey administration? <laughs> um, you know, uh, and, and so they certainly look at Donald Trump as a friend, someone who understands their predicament, and in fact, someone who's actually asking allies to shoulder the load uh, in terms of defense in the Middle East. And so the Israelis appreciate that. They think they have a good understanding with Trump. The question really is whether Trump's decision is going to compound some of the challenges that the Iranians could potentially take advantage of a vacuum and put more assets into the region than the Israelis are prepared to fight. Antonio, let me ask this question as well. In the event of, a, of another war over the next two years, the Israelis are fighting Hezbollah in Lebanon. They're fighting possibly various forces in, uh, in Syria. One might expect that Hamas would begin to attack from Gaza and just to distract some uh, Israeli forces and create another front. What are the chances, what are the capabilities for Israel to say, okay, but we want Ayatollah Khamenei in Tehran to understand that he can't just go off and have his breakfast in peace. We are going, we know where the alligators are coming from and we're going to go to the source. It's, it's an interesting point because uh, the former uh, defense minister, uh, Avigdor Lieberman, for instance, made that very point, right? He, he, he introduced a new equation, as they call it, uh, that if it rains in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, it will also rain not 
in just in Beirut, not just in Syria, but also in Iran. That was the first time that that quid pro quo was introduced. Now, if that becomes actual Israeli doctrine remains to be seen. Same thing applies to Syria. There are ways for the Israelis to tell the Russians that basically if you want to maintain your little fiefdom in, in Syria, uh, then, for instance, we can quite easily plant a missile in Bashar Assad's uh, bedroom if if you if if for instance the Iranians uh, aren't stopped from uh, targeting targeting us from Syria and so on and so forth. But uh, uh, to the broader point about Syria and the United States position in such a in such an eventuality, um, aside from giving Israel uh, munitions and potentially even intelligence assistance and so on, uh, again it's I think it's a mistake to to too narrowly focus on the small contingent that the United States maintains in Syria, despite its importance. Because after all, the United States is present everywhere around Syria, mm. okay, from Iraq to Turkey to the Mediterranean to Jordan, so uh, to the Gulf. So mm. the, the the military assets of the United States are extensive, and so uh, with a with a friendly president, an understanding that. Uh, local or regional allies are going to handle some of that uh, uh, responsibility. And I think the Israeli messaging on this, especially from the prime minister, has been in this direction. That, you know, the United States is doing its thing. We are going to take care of this military issue. And we count on the United States' support and coordination with the United States in order to do so. So I think they're trying to shape the future uh, a sort of cooperation on this uh, on this point, but it's an important point to keep in mind, specifically, like you said, about who is going to be in the White House, because one of the things that people forget about the about the issue of the Syria, the U.S. force in Syria, is that the uh, authorization for the use of military force, the legal basis of the United States presence in Syria. There was a lot of contest contesting by people on the Hill, especially in the Democratic Party, but also some in the GOP, who said you cannot use that to go after Iranian assets in Syria. So that gives us, so, so there are, there's already, there was already some form of sabotage to any attempt to shift the U.S. posture in Syria from merely a passive posture to a more active posture against Iran. And that's why you see the Israelis saying, well, you know, okay, these guys were there, they were holding off the Iranians, but it's not like the United States was targeting Iranian assets in Syria. That's our responsibility and we were doing this. As we just begin to wrap this up, there's been a move in Congress uh, to recognize Israeli sovereignty in the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights was taken from Syria in a defensive war. The Israelis have no thought any longer, once upon a time they did, that they would give it back and as part of some peace process with the Syrians. It's militarily very important. Does it make a difference if the, if, if the U.S. says, yeah, we recognize that the Golan Heights belongs to Israel? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, just um, as a reminder, uh, FTD CEO Mark Dubowitz and I wrote an article about this uh, uh, right at the first meeting uh, between Bibi Netanyahu and, and Donald Trump. And we suggested that this be a move that the United States make. Uh, it would be consistent very much with uh, a lot of the other moves that Donald Trump has made, whether it's uh, uh, you know, in terms of closing the PLO embassy here in the United States, whether it's uh, uh, redesignating Palestinian refugees. In other words, sort of longstanding issues that everybody knows uh, already what the outcome should be. Uh, this is certainly one of those. And I think uh, it became very clear after 2011, after the war erupted in Syria, uh, Syria is not a country anymore. Uh, there's no one to return the Golan Heights to. And if you 
just imagine, had the Israelis handed this territory over to Assad before this war, think about what that would mean for the Israelis. Strategically, they would have, if, if they're in a tough spot now, imagine what it would look like with Hezbollahis and Iranians bearing down on them from, uh, uh, from a territory much closer to Israeli uh, populations. So uh, as we understand it, the Trump administration is considering it. We think it would be a good idea. And one of the things, you know, as uh, the as the United States prepares to leave Syria, uh, I have a feeling that the Trump administration is eager to make things right. We could see this move not as a quid pro quo, but at least as an understanding of Israel's security predicament. Uh, so we could certainly see that, and I think we'd welcome it. Uh, I think also it should be noted here that as the United States considers allowing or uh, deputizing the Israelis to shoulder more of the security load in the Middle East, we may see a revisiting of the memorandum of understanding that was signed during the Obama administration that there could be more money flowing to the Israelis or different kinds of armaments. I think the Israelis are uh, probably reticent to raise this themselves, but it could be certainly something that the Trump administration could raise on their own. I mean, I guess you could say that the, with Trump pulling out of uh, eastern Syria, more than ever, uh, the Israelis become America's expeditionary force, its aircraft carrier in the region. It be, in a certain way, although it's, it's, this is more difficult for Israel, the Israelis are more important. They're the lone champion of Western interests right now in the Middle East. I, I don't see anyone else that is uh, willing to shoulder that load. It's what a true ally is. Well, I'd like to wish you both a happy new year, but I think it's a perilous 2019 that we're looking at and, a, and not a particularly predictable one, but one that's going to require a lot of planning uh, on the part of, uh, of, of, of the U.S. and certainly of the Israelis and others. And I uh, hope you'll come back and we'll talk about this uh, some more uh, as we get uh, as we move through the year. Until then... Thank you for being with us, Tony and John, and thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. If you like this week's episode and have feedback for us, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate your thoughts and your criticisms, too. We hope you'll join us again in the future, but until then, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.